Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When did you last make a contactless payment? About two and a half hours ago. Do you know how much it was for? Three pounds. Um, I bought two drinks from a stall just around the corner there, and I spent three pounds. About ten minutes ago. And how much was it for? No check-in. Oh, I can't tell you. Okay, I think it was... I bought an iced coffee downstairs, and I think that's like three pound fifty. I don't know how much the underground cost. Like probably two fifty. Oh really? It was a, a gate payment. Do you know how much it was for? Uh, two pounds ninety two pence. That's very impressive. Most people don't remember. Yeah. yeah. I, I I always check, and also there was number symmetry. Now then, when was the last time you paid for something using contactless? And how much was the charge? With contactless payments being so frictionless, so easy, it can be easy to lose track of what you're actually spending. But its simplicity and that ease is also part of its appeal. It helps explain how, over the past decade, contactless has quickly very quietly become the go-to way to pay. It's now the dominant way to make credit and debit card transactions, certainly here in the UK. In 2021, 13.1 billion contactless payments were made. That's up 52% from 2019. Now, this massive jump can be partly explained by the pandemic and the public health case for contactless interactions as well as periodic increases in the contactless limit. So it was raised from £30 to £45 in April 2020, and then from £45 to £100 in October 2021. With this technology quickly becoming part of our everyday lives, we want to explore where did the idea originally come from and how does contactless transactions actually work? Who makes money from it? We're going to get into all of that and much more in today's episode. Welcome to Patented, a podcast all about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell, and today I'm joined by two experts on the subject, Gottfried Liebrandt and Natasha de Taran, who are payment experts and also authors of the book, The Payoff, How Changing the Way We Pay Changes Everything. Let's get into it. Well, 
welcome to the show, Gottfried and Natasha. It's lovely to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. We were struggling getting online, you know, setting this call up just now, Gottfried, and it reminds me of just how complex we've made <laughs> we've made the world. I don't know. It all used to be so simple, the world, and now it's sort of baffling yeah. doing things like <laughs> talking to people, paying for things. Hey, listen, first of all, I want to say congratulations on the book, The Payoff, which I'm about halfway through and really, really enjoying it. Obviously, we think about money all the time, but the actual idea of payment, it's so embedded in everything that we do, you don't even think about it. And I think, Godfrey, I'd heard you in an interview, I think you described yourself as being a bit like a plumber, which I think is really, really useful because we all use water, but we don't think about the plumbing at all until something goes wrong. And then suddenly we all start thinking about the plumbing. And actually, the way we pay for things is kind of the plumbing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. We always call it the plumbing of the financial system. And you would describe yourself as a plumber? I would happily describe myself as a plumber. We make the pipes work that carry the money around the world and uh, (laughs) are interested in how that works, be it the small trickles or be it the big amounts that go back and forth. And it is like plumbing and electricity in the sense that you mostly notice it when it doesn't work. But until then, yeah, it just should work, should be there. And uh, ideally, you don't even notice it. We're going to talk about the invention of contactless payment in a minute. But Natasha, can I just introduce you as well? Are you also a plumber? No, I'm more an observer of plumbers. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I, I think it's probably how I'd describe myself. Okay. It's always interesting because people who work in money and plumbers seem to get paid the most in life. If anyone's trying to hire a plumber, it's always eye-wateringly expensive for good reasons. Before we sort of get on to content, this idea of complexity in payment, it used to be so simple when it was just cash <laughs> and a checkbook. And it's really weird because every time I do any kind of online banking or anything, it always involves a faff. It always involves my bank checking to see if there's fraud and fraud then happens. I've been a victim of fraud so many times. In the old days, if you wanted to commit fraud in a bank, you'd have to put a balaclava on and go in with a sawn-off shotgun. Why haven't we got it fixed? Why is it still such a massive pain in the backside? Well, but, but, but let's first not romanticize the age of cash, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's not like cash was so easy and we didn't have any problems. Uh, you could get pickpocketed, robbed, you could lose the cash. You could never pay somebody remotely with cash. So, I mean, the whole internet economy would not be possible with cash. Um, why is it difficult? I mean, to be honest, I still have to say you could also argue the reverse. I mean, the miracle that you can anywhere in the world pull out a card and pay and get the opposite party to accept it, and then behind the scenes, the money moves from A to B, that in itself is a miracle, right? You can take your wallet, you can go anywhere in the world you can pay. The mere fact that you can pay for things remotely, that you can pay for it online, I think is also pretty miraculous. And yes, people would like to verify your identity, and the solutions for that are not ideal. But I guess my question is, have we just gone too fast? Because it seems like a lot of people have been left behind. And the fact that I kind of know nothing about how any of this works, to me, seems not an ideal situation. It seems like the technology itself has exponentially gone at such a crazy pace that lots of us are being left behind and there are still so many problems. Like, should we not sort of slow it down a bit? Oh, that's an interesting one. I find it fascinating that you see that new ways that we pay as being more complicated because the whole industry is dedicated to ensuring that you find it easier. Yeah, but it's a bit like logging on to Zoom. It's so simple, but like no one can do it. No one has managed to (laughs) successfully operate a Zoom call without having someone say, oh, you're on mute, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's a bit like kind of banking online. At some point, you're going to have all your money stolen and someone set up a passport in your name and just endless messages from your bank and call centers and You know, the days of real simplicity seem to be a long way away. Yes, it's simple to pull out your card and knock it against a contact payment, but it opens up a whole world of pain very often. 
and yet all designed to make the process of paying as painless as possible so that you don't experience that mental friction of do I want to do this? Yeah. I'm trying to slow the world down, I guess. I'm still kind of walking into my bank. I mean, I live in central London and I still like walking into my bank and (laughs) actually speaking to a human. But going back to your comment about whether people understand what they're doing, I mean, I don't think most of us understand the plumbing or how the water gets gets out of the tap. And I'm not sure that that matters hugely. I don't think the world at large needs to understand the intricacies of the plumbing system. But what I do think starts to be problematic is when people don't realise that they're actually paying, Mm. that they're engaging in a commercial transaction and money is moving from A to B. Is it fair to say, Natasha, that because of this new way that we now pay and we're going cashless and everything else, the way that we buy things has completely changed and we just don't do things the same way that we used to do things. And that is going to be fraught with issues too. I think that and the risk that we carry around, and there's two things I think with that. So back in the day, we used to check the receipt before we paid over our cash. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah. Now you wave at a machine without checking the sum sitting on the machine. Hmm. You know, if you put that into a restaurant context with the service charge before that was computed separately, now someone arrives with the machine and the service charge is automatically added on. And you just, the computations that we used to make, we're not doing anymore, which can lead to overspending, Yeah, which is problematic. But if you think about the average person in the UK will be leaving the house with two or three contactless cards, each carrying an upward limit of £100. From a mugger's perspective, that's a completely different prospect than someone leaving the house with £10 in cash. Presumably, I mean, in your experience, I know nothing about this. It just seems there's so much fraud, it's ridiculous. Maybe I'm grumpy about this because I'm constantly being a victim of fraud. And when I'm not a victim of fraud, I'm still grumpy about it. But maybe two things, right, Natasha? One is you could argue that payments are difficult. There are loads of people arguing that paying has become too easy. Yeah. And that leads to overspending and preying on the vulnerable and all these type of things. The other issue is security. Now, I would argue that mugging somebody of cash is not the same as getting their card. Because if they mug your card, they're going to have to use that card in a store. That store will have a camera. So it's not like you get cash if you mug somebody's contactless card. Yes, you can spend up to 100 but somebody will be able to identify that that was a stolen card, maybe after the fact, but they can then look up the video and see who was using that in that store. So I'm not so sure it is that easy. And fraud has become more complicated. It's still possible when we get phishing and what is a help desk fraud and God knows what, but it has become a lot more difficult than just taking a hundred pound note from somebody, which is anonymous. And after that, yeah, the trail goes dead, right? Mm. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning. We had cash. And then we had checkbooks and check guarantee cards and things like that. When did it all change? Is there a kind of genesis moment? Was there a bit of technology or was it a person or what happened? Well, there is the famous first supper as opposed to the last supper, which was a meal that supposedly took place, I think, in 1956 or 57 in New York between a bunch of Americans who were having lunch together And I think over lunch, they mused about the idea of a credit card and one left his business card to pay for it. And that sort of evolved into what became Diners Club. So that genesis, if there is a genesis, you can trace it back to a meal where they discussed the idea and then actually made it work. And that became the credit card industry. From there, it started out as charge cards. Then somebody invented the idea that you could add credit to it. You could roll over the balance to the next. I think Bank of America was the one in California who took the idea of adding revolving credit to it and nearly went bust in the initial stages because they gave it way too easily to people, couldn't recover the debts, etc. So there's a lot of inventing as you go along. And then they invented electronic terminals where you had a Mac stripe on the back of the card instead of these old zip zaps where you had to take carbon copies. And uh, from there on, it went to online usage. 
And then we get to your topic of adding contactless to that card. So can I just ask about the sort of technology that sort of made it possible? I mean, was it a specific thing that suddenly good? oh my goodness, we don't actually need cash anymore. We can do it via these bits of plastic and such. I think it was more people reinventing the business system than inventing the technology on the spot. Right. Now, of course, it was made possible by the fact that people could phone up and check somebody's balance if they doubted it and that you had a functioning mail system, etc. But the early credit cards did not rely on electronic terminals or all of that. That only came later. They weren't even plastic. Until the 60s, they were made of cardboard. I didn't know that. I'm actually wondering, like, how did we agree on the size of cards? Like, Why are they that size? I think that dates back to the original supper. I don't think it's a coincidence that they're derived from a business card. What's extraordinary about it is if you think about all the different ways that we pay in different countries mm. and our different habits and different currencies and all of these other differences that you have in the ways that we pay across countries. But the one similarity is the unique size of the card. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it'll never change. For as long as we have them, they will always be that <laughs> So we see this sort of gentle kind of movement away from cash to sort of credit cards to debit cards. Now it's like we said, even easier. I just take out my card or my phone, actually. I use my phone and tap it and I can make a transaction. When did that first happen? Or when was that first idea that this would even be a possibility? When did that happen and who was it? It dates back to what's known as RFID technology, radio frequency identity, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's a nifty bit of technology because it involves a passive chip, right? So the idea is that your car does not carry its own energy source, right? There's no battery in it. Yeah. So what the technology needs to do is the reader, which is now the card reader, it needs to generate its own energy and with that energy, read out the passive device that doesn't have energy in itself. So that's RFID technology, which was invented already, I think, in the 80s and, uh, and the 90s. That was used for public transportation first. I think the South Koreans have the first use in public transportation, a thing called U-Pass. So what year are we talking about here? So this is South Korea. 95, I think. 95. Yeah. And then Philips and Sony took that further and sort of morphed it into what is now NFC, Near Field Communication. They developed that, uh, then we're talking 2002, 2003, I think to really make it specific for uh, for payment terminals and payment cards. And the first use of that in the UK is a, a famous story when uh, one of the banks, I think it was NetWest, uh, they launched it uh, using a Formula One car driving through a McDonald's drive through to make the first contactless payment in the UK. And that was in 2007. In the UK, and it was in the McDonald's. Crikey. <laughs> and it was Barclays, I think, Godfrey. <laughs> oh, Barclays, sorry. Oh, uh, okay. How does it work? Like, presumably all the banks have to agree. We all have to decide, okay, this is the way that we're going to do things. Is there like a kind of regulatory body that says, right, this is going to now be the way that we buy things? Like, who makes these sorts of decisions? Well, a lot of these decisions, there are a couple of bodies. I would have to look up what it is for NFC. It may actually be a telecommunications or an internet standardization body that does that. But a lot of the decisions around cards are made by EMV, which used to be Eurocard, MasterCard and Visa, which is a consortium of the card companies. Mm -hmm. And they set many of the standards in the card world. And I wouldn't be surprised if NFC falls under that as well. Yeah. But indeed, there's a lot of standardization at the national level going on. International standards has always been uh, more difficult. SWIFT famously sets standards for the format of the messages. Yeah. For cross-border, the card company set it for the smaller payments. Again, there's a standard that was developed by, by EMV for the communications. So there are various bodies that do it. You mentioned SWIFT. I know you both work for SWIFT or have worked in the past. Can you just explain what we mean by SWIFT? 
Swift is a telecommunications network. That's the best way to think about it. Okay. It was invented in the 70s at the same time when networks were invented to do airline reservations like the, the Sabre system and the CETA network. Every bank got a terminal and it really replaced the telex. Banks were sending each other telexes to confirm payments, pay this customer on behalf of my customer, these type of messages. When telexes became too voluminous, uh, they replaced it with the SWIFT network. Every bank got a terminal, entered their payment instructions on that terminal. They were sent to a central computer that stored them, and then the recipient would log in and get their instructions, much like the telex worked, but in a much more efficient way. And that has evolved over the years, but now still the main business of SWIFT is doing exactly that, relaying the payment instructions and account statements between the 10,000 banks that make up the global banking network and they will execute their customer payments using those instructions. A lot of it is machine to machine, so it no longer involves human intervention. It connects the computers, the back office computers of one bank, yeah. which will automatically generate the swift messages and they will go to the others. Natasha, can I ask you a little bit about fraud? I remember there was a case, I think it was the North Koreans, they hacked into, I can't remember which country it was now. Bangladesh. Bangladesh, yeah. I mean, how prevalent is fraud with this system? Are we seeing sort of more fraud now? Well, I think C is the interesting verb to use there because with cash, you didn't necessarily see so much of the fraud or theft that was going on. People could sort of walk into a bank with balaclavas on and it was quite a thing. You know, it was sort of... Yeah. I know the figures for cards, for credit cards. I think the figures are that fraud is about 0.2% of the total card volume, of the total spending. Okay. Um, that used to be, I think, 0.15. It's gone up a little bit with internet and all these new developments, etc. Mm. But not a hell of a lot. So it is much less than 1%, at least for all the purchases that are made on cards. Okay. And Dallas, to your point earlier about the amount of fraud you're subjected to, I mean, I think you've got the disadvantage of speaking English and operating in English. I think that the UK is particularly attractive to a fraudster. Much easier for a fraudster to focus his efforts on the UK than, say, Holland he's got to learn another language or she's got to learn another language or Finland or something like that. Your, your universe of targets is far bigger in the English language than in others. And I think the other side of the UK is that we are more digital than many other countries. And in fact, the other countries that are as digital as us, Finland, Sweden, Holland, you've got a very finite universe of consumers to steal money from. We'll be back after this short break. Millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 to called the Forgotten War? The North Koreans and the South Koreans, even today in the 2020s, they're still officially at war. This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. From the halls of power. I've seen documents in the last week where the British chiefs of staff are telling Clement Attlee, this might lead to World War III. This might be a nuclear war. To the battlefront. During the Korean War, the ship fired its guns far more than it ever did in the whole of the Second World War. Because that's what we were doing day in, day out. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit. As we remember the war, the world forgot. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Can you paint a little picture for us about how people's spending habits have changed because of this technology now that we're contactless? How has our behavior changed? Are we buying more? Are we spending more? Are we getting into more debt? I think it is leading to more spending. I don't think there's any question. And if you're thinking about the genesis of contactless payments, it was transport where you want to pump them through. You want to get people through as quickly as possible. And as the traveler, you also don't want to be fumbling around for coins in order to get your old paper underground tickets and so on and so forth. When I go through like the London Underground, I sort of tap, tap, tap. And I, I'm not even keeping a mental record of what I'm doing. It kind of just happens by magic. Whereas, you know, having coins, you, I don't know, there's a psychological attachment to an actual thing, which has now disappeared, which I think for lots of people, that's a quite a dangerous thing, perhaps. I think so. I mean, there are lots of apps and you know, a lot of the online banking capabilities allow you to see Mm. your spending by coffee, by transport, by this and by that. So you can ex post do all your kind of accounting measures and see how you're spending your money and stop yourself and put on blockers and so forth. I think the problem is that those that probably would be most vulnerable to overspending in, in a way that's actually seriously damaging to their lifestyle might not actually be aware of or have access to these tools. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people around the world who just haven't caught up with this technology yet. And there seems to be a kind of inclusion exclusion about it. And everyone's like, oh, but it's so wonderful. It's so easy. Well, it is easy. But if you're maybe not as digitally savvy as other people, then I don't know. There seems to be a lot of reaction against sort of going to a totally cashless society. Yeah. When debt counselors have to advise people how to get out of debt situations, often what they advise is, why don't you just burn all your cards and move back to cash? Because that way you have the visibility of what you spend Mm. and much more control over what you spend. So that is there. On inclusion, I always find it paradoxical. I mean, in the last 10 years, I think we went from, especially in the third world, we went from one third of the population 
banked in one way or another to two thirds of the population having access to financial services, which is incredibly rapid, right? That's literally billions that have joined the formal financial system in a couple of years. And all of that is made possible by the mobile. So basically, because they all have a mobile, I mean, mobile penetration in big parts of the world is bigger now than the penetration of electricity, water or sanitation, uh, if you will. So that has made possible access to financial services for a lot of people who never had it before. So there is a flip side to yes, of course there is yeah. financial inclusion as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really interesting, actually. I, you know, I live in central London, and if you ever get a cab in central London, cabbies hate it. They desperately want cash all the time. There just seems to be certain groups of people who just would much rather, you know, I don't know whether it's a trust thing or whether it's an economics thing. Or, or maybe a tax thing. Or a tax. <laughs> Could well be a tax. not quite <laughs> what that says about London taxi drivers. They've all got their special little contactless thing as well. They never use the official one. So, oh, no, can you use this one? I Presumably it's a money thing. Well, the commission they get charged is not trivial. No. But the London cabbie is, without generalising too much, I mean, he is, and it is usually he, is a species of their own, aren't they? Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with London cabbies. Because a law got passed, like they had to have contactless in their cabs. I can't remember when that came in a few years ago, because it was all very much cash, cash, cash. Mm. But yes, anyway, direction of travel, where are we going? So we're, we're upping contactless limits. Are we going to get to a point where we don't even need cards? Or, you know, if we had this conversation in 10 years time, what's it going to look like? And maybe pick up on your previous point, there may be a law forcing cabbies to accept contactless. Mm. I think in Scandinavia, they're now having laws for merchants to accept cash the other way around. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them, since very few consumers still carry cash in Scandinavia, yeah. many of the shops say, why do I bother with keeping a cash teller and having to count it at the end of the day and dropping it off, etc.? Why don't they do away with the whole thing altogether? Mm-hmm. And then you can no longer pay with cash in many stores. Yeah. So that's the issue coming. Is it going to die or is it, as you say, Gottlieb, is it going to be some kind of backlash back towards cash in some way or is cash totally dead now? I don't think it's going to die. I think people will keep it as a safety storage, etc. But I do think in many countries we will see it die for everyday use. 20 years from now, I doubt if anybody still carries cash around on a daily basis. Anybody. What do you think, Natasha? Are you... Well, I think the rapid descent that we, the UK and Sweden have had over the last several years have sort of refocused the population's mind on how they're spending and made people start to think, actually, do I want to live in a completely cashless society? Yeah. And what does that mean for other people? So I don't think we will do, but I would question whether keeping cash helps the most vulnerable, because just as there's a poverty premium for, you know, paying the electricity by meter, there is a poverty premium for paying by cash. And that will get more acute as time goes on. And basically, any economic activity you undertake in a non-digital form, you're likely to be paying some form of premium for. So it's a very difficult one. But I think the libertarian kind of attachment to cash is going to come to the fore. And people that wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as being libertarian, I think, might just have objections to everything being recorded. Why, why is there a libertarian attachment to cash? Where does that come from? Is it a sort of mistrust of institutions, mistrust of the technology? Well, you have the libertarians that sort of go Bitcoin, so even more electronic, and then you have the yeah those that represent cash. But yeah, it's, it's your ability to undertake an economics transaction completely free of surveillance, yeah. other than obviously your smartphone and the CCTV cameras. <laughs> There's lots of contradictions going on in, yeah. in this perceived freedom. You mentioned smartphones. Can I ask about sort of Apple Pay and Google Pay? Are we going to get to the point where we just won't have cards at all? Everything will just be on our iPhones? Is that the direction of travel? Yeah, I think that is the direction of travel, yeah. 
What I find quite interesting is where you have digital-only outfits like Revolut or Klarna, and I know both of them are not just digital-only, they give you virtual cards and then you can also have a proper card. But that sort of mental image of the whatever it is, three and a half inch thing is very deeply embedded into our psyche so that when they yeah. give us the ability to transact electronically, they're feeling the need to digitally replicate that physical. There is something human about physical things, but maybe that's a generational thing. Maybe I can't remember who said it. People don't change their minds. They just die off, you know. And, and, <laughs> once we... and that was in the context of Brexit or? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's certainly the context of Brexit, certainly in the context of science and thought generally. Yeah, yeah. Human beings are not very good at change, but, you know, change happens very quickly. So longevity is a problem from that perspective. Yes, that's another discussion <laughs> to have. <then. laughs> yeah, but even things like the size of phones is interesting. You can look at kind of Sumerian tablets from antiquity and they're kind of exactly the same size as an ipad you know for good reasons it's just there are things that humans like and we like to touch and we like to sort of have physical things which we still have a sort of emotional response to cash that we don't have digitally but you know that's just me <laughs> maybe but i think there is that emotional response to the extent any of this is emotional to the digital credit card mm. otherwise they wouldn't replicate it in that way because anything less suited to transacting electronically than the three and a half inch bit of plastic. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I think you even added in the Bitcoin context, I've seen stands at congresses where you can buy Bitcoin and you get a physical token, which seems completely daft and counter to the point. But yeah, people want a physical representation that they own the Bitcoin. <laughs> That's interesting. And yeah, I mean, the main players in contactless, I wonder if they kind of work with psychologists to sort of understand how people react to physical things and money generally. In the payments world, I think it's thought about an awful lot. When you think about who is the biggest customer of a payments mm. organisation, it's not you and me, it's the merchants. If the merchants don't accept contactless, there's no point you and I being able to interact. No. What do the merchants want? They want to sell. They don't want us to have second thoughts at the till. They don't want us to worry about how much it costs. So the psychology is all about making it as easy and seamless and painless for us to pay, mm -hmm. which coming back to the overspending and control questions, is that a positive for us as, as consumers or, or not? Yeah. Depends on your mental arithmetic, I suppose, husbandry. <laughs> it's interesting, by the way, to see Amazon has now an Amazon Go store in London, by the way. I've not been there, but how it works is there are cameras that observe your shopping and basically they know what's in your basket. And you just walk out of the store. And the moment you cross the line to walk out the store, you get charged for the goods on a preloaded credit card. I have one five minutes from where I live and I've used it. Apparently, it's a spooky experience, people tell me. It's really spooky because, you know, you walk in, you don't have to do anything. Actually, me and my daughter, we try and trick it. We try and see if we can sneak an extra Mars bar in and see if it actually... But it does, it gets it every time. It's really, really amazing. I can understand how, like you say, there is something quite ghostly and magical about it. I can understand how it makes people nervous because that does seem to be what's going to happen, doesn't it? We will just walk in, there'll be camera or surveillance, whatever it is, and, and it'll automatically just... Process us. Process us. Yeah. I want to go and live in a croft in the north of Scotland, I think. And, and <laughs> You're a libertarian then? I'm certainly not a libertarian. I'm certainly oh, not okay. a libertarian. No, I'm the opposite of a libertarian. So in our brave new payment world, who's actually making the money? Who are the real winners in this? Is it the treasury because we're spending more? Is it the tech companies? Well, society benefits because we're spending more and there's more employment and so on and so forth. But yes, the treasury's take is healthier than it would otherwise have been. Two reasons. One, we're probably spending more and two, more of it's visible to Treasury than your cabbie's tenor might necessarily have been in the past. I think the Gen Zs, they tend to use the Apple Pay and Google Pay and so forth, the embedded 
cards in their wallets. So in those cases, big tech will be taking a good chunk of the money. And I think Apple announced earlier this week it was going to roll out in the US the ability for merchants to take through Apple Pay as well. So watch big techs take on it. Mm -hmm. But I think the card companies, the merchants, because we're spending more, but I don't think the merchants pay more because a payment is made by contactless than another form. Okay. Do you think that the sort of technology is moving too fast? Do you think people are sort of educated enough? You know, the fact that you've written a book about it and the fact that I'm like, oh my God, who knew that this exists? We need better education in terms of how it all works. Plumbing lessons. Well, I think we wrote the book not because we were worried about people's understanding, but we both thought the subject was fascinating. But we also find it fascinating that there's this huge trust and belief in money because that's what it is. And most of us work through most of our workable lives to earn money with the implicit and explicit trust in the fact that we can move it because that's really the only point because we're not going out at the end of the school cards. It's so that we can use our money during our lives and maybe leave some behind, all of which presupposes that we have the ability to move it. And yet the one thing that most people aren't asking about is how are they moving it and what does that depend on and who's controlling the economics of that? What are they doing with the information? What could they do with the information? What does it mean for freedom, for, for choice, for cost? Great. Thank you. Let's leave it there. And Natasha and Godfrey, thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. I'm going to um, go to the Amazon store and <laughs> see, if I, <laughs> see if I can trick it. Good luck. It's become my favourite. You can't. You can't. No. Well, I don't know. I'd never been to that. It was my daughter or when it first opened. She was like, Dad, come and check this out. And we went along and I, I'm like, I can't understand how it works. It's like really weird and it, it does work. It's amazing. But they must have lots of customers coming in, going to speak to someone saying, can I try and cheat it? Because you don't have to be a thief to want to know whether... Exactly. I'm not a thief. I'm just interested in the technology and how it works. And like, yeah. and I'm suitably bewildered and baffled by something that can be so kind of, just feels very alien mm. to my Gen X brain. Although since these are trial stores, I wouldn't be surprised if it's not just technology, but a bunch of guys actually watching cameras, just like that famous automated chess player that had a mechanical Turk inside, if you yes, remember. Exactly. <laughs> it might well be that they have a few guys actually monitoring you. <laughs> yeah. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Mm. The final thought on contactless payments is they're really just at the beginning. So the application and the way that we think about them today will be so different to what we're using them for and how we're using them. I think it'll be very, very different in three or four years' time. The kind of things that it will enable, humble people like me certainly wouldn't have thought about, and suddenly we'll realise we're doing completely new things as a result of having this technology. Brilliant. Let's leave it there. Listen, thank you so much. I'm so enjoying the book, and you're brilliant writers, but I still don't understand how Bitcoin works. <laughs> I've listened to that many podcasts about it and explanations. I still find the whole thing really peculiar. But what do I know? Anyway, listen, thanks very much indeed, Natasha and Godfrey. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to learn more about payments generally, especially contactless payments, Natasha and Godfrey's book, The Payoff, How Changing the Way We Pay Changes Everything is out now. It's a really, really good read. If you're like me and, and don't know much about the subject, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating and a review. It helps others discover the show. Don't forget as well, if you've got a subject or an idea or a thing that you want us to explore in depth, get in touch and we'll put it on our list. I'll see you soon.
while I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Folk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.